All right, you know, I'm in a little different position here. Caroline and I are going to do this together. So I think most of you know Pastor Caroline. She's the associate pastor of youth and newcomers, but also just general associate pastor and does a lot of pastoral care and counsel and strategy and all the other things. And we work really closely together and have for 10 years. Yes. So Caroline and I did something a little bit like this, oh, pre-pandemic, a long time ago, with a slightly different context, um, where we were just talking a little bit about destigmatizing different um, mental health issues. And so that's what we would like to do this morning. So we're going to hit on a few things in a more conversational type of style. We're going to talk a little bit about language. We're going to talk a little bit about the overlap of spirituality with different mental health experiences. Talk a little bit about resilience, but we don't want to steal Rachel's thunder because she's going to preach on resilience <laughs> next week and a few other things. I, it might be helpful for you to know, like, Caroline and I, you know, we, we went through and thought about the things that we wanted to hit on, but we haven't, like, practiced this, right? So it should have a pretty, like, free-form um, kind of feel to it. So I know, like, last week when I opened this sermon series about community healing and mental health, I threw out just a few things that I've dealt with personally at different times in my life where I've dealt with anxiety, a little depression, uh, PTSD, right after I went through that big, long experience with my last denomination, after they decided to make rules about, uh, you know, gay marriage and gay pastors after I met Rachel, and getting outed and fired and all of that. So that was fun. Not fun, but I think of those kinds of symptoms for me as like kind of coming and going in my life, largely depending on sort of the circumstances that I've had. And so then I manage those symptoms just depending on how much they're affecting me in my day-to-day -day life. But my experience is a little bit different than yours. So do you want to share a little about yours, Caroline? Yeah, yeah. So some of you have already heard um, my story, some of my stories, some of my jokes, <laughs> things like that. And, um, but my, my experience is slightly different than Emily's maybe significantly different. Um, but I did want to um, start with, um, you know, during COVID when everyone was having a really hard time and there was a shortage of toilet paper, my husband and I got a bidet. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he kept saying, we're just going to take it day bidet. Oh, hey, Matt. Yeah. So I just thought, yes, that's, that's how I'm taking my mental health is day by day. Bidet. <laughs> Um, but when I was in my late 20s, um, I experienced symptoms of um, psychosis and mania, and I was hospitalized. Um, about four years later, I had a relapse and was hospitalized again. So mm -hmm. pretty significant, uh, that something that I'm dealing with. Um, and I just wanted to say, before we really start digging in, a, a few things about uh, mental illness in our society. Um, I think that um, people with mental illness, um, maybe I sometimes liken them to canaries in a coal mine, mm -hmm. where there's problems in society or in family systems or um, in um, people experiencing trauma, and that those can sometimes trigger people who are more sensitive to those things than others. Mm -hmm. And so they're alerting a society that there's something going on that needs some attention. Uh -huh. Um, and I remember telling my psychiatrist this, that, you know, I know there's the medical model that people who have um, mental illness have a chemical imbalance in the brain mm -hmm. and that they just need medications to fix it. And I trust medications and I'm thankful for them, but it's so much bigger. And she said, mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with you. And I was like, oh, so this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful <laughs> relationship. Yeah. You know, and she's a great, a great therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, Emily's going to probably uh, touch on Tanya Lerman. A little. Yeah, I mean, it is, there are some interesting things, like there's a lot that we don't know or understand um, about 
our mental illnesses. And Tanya Lerman is a psychiatrist and anthropologist at Stanford University who's done some really interesting studies on um, some of the different symptoms of psychosis and how people experience them in different cultures. And I won't go too much into it, but there was something that I thought might be helpful. Um, she was studying Americans with psychosis, people in Ghana, and people in Chennai, India. And she said it was really interesting, all of the Americans who experienced like, hearing voices, people who would probably have like, a schizophrenia diagnosis, um, they all experienced their voices as like, harsh or violent. They experienced them negatively as to where people in other cultures do not always experience, in fact, often don't experience their voices negatively. And so their voices might be perceived as being um, kinder or funny. Like she talked about in India, they often um, interact with their voices, like they have a relationship with them and they experience them as like uh, being entertaining or making jokes about sex. And in Ghana, it's a lot more like hearing from God or different voices from ancestors. And so she was talking about like, the, the main thing that she, she's like, this definitely just needs more study, of people looking at how culture relates to how we experience symptoms. But she's like, you know, in America, we think of ourselves as individuals, we think of our minds as a closed system, right? Like what's in my mind is mine alone, nobody can invade that. And then we experience these voices as like this very hostile, like you've invaded into my space. And she said in other cultures that have a little bit more of like a relational um, view of humanity and maybe even having more of a, like a more porous mind in terms of like they might talk with or interact with like ancestors or different spirits that that sort of porous mind um, seems to help them embrace these different voices that they're hearing in a way that's friendlier. So it's just interesting, right? It's, there's more going on. Yeah, and it, and it shows how powerful stigma can be, mm -hmm. and that stigma prevents people from experiencing a lot more distress and mm -hmm. difficulty when they have these moments that are part of the human experience. Yeah, she's like, it's, it's a really difficult choice because people have a right to their diagnosis, right? And that's, they just do, but also as soon as they receive a diagnosis, sometimes then they experience their symptoms more negatively, and so that's yeah. a hard thing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the language that we use around mental health. And I think that how we talk about experiences that affect minority groups of people can sometimes be a little bit intimidating if it's not your experience, if you're not well-versed in it. Um, I sometimes think that's, that's one of the challenges of even like just progressive culture, right? Is that language is constantly evolving and, and being discussed, and I think that's good, but it can sometimes be a little bit overwhelming for people. So I thought I would just give, from my experience of being gay, I know that like accepted terms about queerness can change a lot, and that can be overwhelming for people who maybe aren't queer themselves or have queer family members. And so an example I like to give is that like a lot of people who are um, queer don't love the word homosexual, right? Like we can talk about homosexuality versus heterosexuality, and that's fine, but like using it as a noun to describe a person usually doesn't feel great for most people. But if somebody is talking to me and they're using that term and I can tell that like, their intentions are good or their posture toward me is one of openness, I'm not offended, right? I'm not, I'm not worried about that because I feel like we're all learning together. And so that's a time where I can just pop in and offer like, oh, you know, like here, here's what I prefer. I prefer gay or queer, or LGBTQ, because they're a little bit more updated. But I want to make that space in here for all kinds of terms like that of like, um, you know, we've, we've got space to learn and to grow and to learn from each other, and I want to make it that kind of safe space. And I think the same thing is true with mental health, and I think the very first thing that we have to remember is that people get to choose how to define themselves. And so sometimes just asking people 
the language that they prefer to use about their symptoms is a perfectly fine thing to do. So Caroline, I call her CK, so if you ever hear that, that's it's her initials. CK, what is your preferred language? Yeah, and I find that so helpful when you say, when it's used as like a noun, like defining all of who you are uh -huh. and kind of, um, you know, just summing someone up so quickly with one quick label. Um, is, is harmful, and that goes back to the stigma, and that nobody wants to be considered crazy or mentally ill in our culture. It's so right. stigmatized. Um, I prefer person-first language, so um, rather than saying, like, I'm bipolar or she's bipolar, mm -hmm. I prefer to say, like, I'm a person who's experienced symptoms of mania and psychosis, depression, mm -hmm. um, or depending on the context, yeah, I've been diagnosed with bipolar. Mm -hmm. And that's more helpful for, for me. Um, and one thing about um, labels, I think that maybe it can be helpful in many contexts, mm -hmm. is that a label I think can be good for two reasons. One, to bring about shared human experience, that I am not alone, you've had a similar experience as me and we have a name for it, that's helpful. Another reason why a label might be helpful with mental, with mental health is that it can um, lay out a course for treatment. So this is what's really helpful for people who've been similarly diagnosed, and that's helpful. But when someone labels you as like, oh, she's bipolar, she's mentally ill, that can be really harmful and stigmatizing and damaging. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, and I've learned a lot from you, and I've learned a lot from Rachel, too, because I know I sometimes feel like, oh, no, what if I'm using the wrong language? I don't want to hurt someone or offend them. Um, so some of the language that's been helpful to me is I sometimes talk about like my mental health journey has been helpful to me. Um, I often use like mental health challenges or living with mental health symptoms. And I try and steer away from more militant language. So things like I'm battling with depression or wrestling with anxiety or fighting something because it paints a little bit more of like a violent or adversarial image. And I think that we can offer some gentler ways of approaching that. So question for you, CK. As someone who sometimes experiences symptoms of bipolar disorder, occasionally those symptoms have some overlap right, with spiritual experiences. And would you like to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a part of a big reason why I'm drawn to church, I think, is because my symptoms are profoundly spiritual um, in, in some ways. And, and I'll, I'll go into that more in a little bit. But um, people ex do experience mental health differently. Mm -hmm. So with bipolar, you might have heard people, or you might know people who maybe have spent a lot of money or slept around or stay awake for days and days. Mm -hmm. um, there's an author, Kay Redfield Jameson. She wrote The Unquiet Mind. Mm -hmm. And um, she grew up in a science family. So her parents were biologists or scientists or something. And when she was experiencing psychosis, she felt like she was flying among the planets or like on a molecular level, like dealing with things on a molecular level. So it was a very sciencey way of experiencing these symptoms. Well, I grew up in a really religious environment, so very conservative covenant community with a lot of guilt, shame, purity, some of that stuff. And so when I experience symptoms, it's like, and I know the Bible stories, I mean, they come alive for me. It's mm -hmm. like I'm experiencing the Bible in a living way. The, everything is saturated with religious meaning or... Um, uh, symbolism, and I feel God's presence in a strong way. And one thing that Tanya Lerman said that I find so helpful is that um, when people experience God um, and it's not connected to mental illness, there's um, a warm and loving invitation, and I've experienced mm -hmm. that in my life. But when it's mental health, it's um, compulsion, 
and fear. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way to discern, is this compulsive or is this a warm invitation? Mm -hmm. And kind of discerning those two things can be really helpful for me. Yeah, so I, I wanted to go back a little bit with that porousness of the mind that we were talking about with different cultures, um, because Christian spirituality actually, we have to remember, it is an Eastern religion, and so it actually has ways that offer us of an imagination for a more porous mind. Um, so Christian spirituality assumes that there are multiple types of thoughts that are going through our heads at any given time, and that can be a helpful tool. So a widely practiced Catholic tradition would be Ignatian discernment. So that's a method that was developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola. And he describes three different inner voices or thoughts in our heads that can help us make sense of what our bodies and minds are saying to us. So he talks about how one is our own voice. It might be our desire or our will. Another, he would say, is an adversarial voice. And so some experience that as like an outside force. I might describe it as a Westerner as more like the shaming voices that I've internalized in my head, the ones that you know, tell me that I'm not enough, I'm not good enough or successful enough or smart enough or whatever it is. And then the third voice is the voice of God, and that's the spirit of love, however it is that we imagine what that looks like. And so Ignatius developed this three-step process that can help people kind of sort through some of those different things. And you may or may not find that a helpful framework, but I do think this concept of there being like multiple lenses through which we get information in our minds or filter that to be a useful tool. So CK, how do we know if we're hearing the voice of God? Like what are some baseline things that have been helpful to you? Yeah, I love that Ignatian discernment process. I think that's so powerful. And whether you've had severe symptoms or just dealing with the ups and downs of life, it's so helpful. Looking at you, Sue Brokaw, who's a spiritual director. <laughs> yes, our you spiritual ever director. Help and with that. Sue is amazing yeah. in helping with that stuff. So, um, yeah, I thought maybe I would explain this with a story. So um, when I was experiencing my relapse um, and I, I hadn't been a part of a faith community, I didn't really feel like I had God in my life, and I started feeling like I really want God in my life. I, I want to maybe find a church. I want to get back to religion and God and stuff like that. And so I was um, uh, reading the Bible more and more, and I started having some symptoms at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so that adversarial voice was there. And so I told my mom, you know, I'm reading the Bible, and when it says, woe to you, I don't, you know, get away from me, I don't know you, or, you know, it's emotional for me, but it was, yeah. I felt like it was like, it was like talking these things towards me. And my mom said, that's not God. That does not sound like God. Like, mm. I know God. That is not God. Mm. And she said that you're believing maybe in like lies or untruths or that, that av- accuse, adversarial the voice. adversarial yeah. or the accuser. And I thought, oh, I'm believing these things that aren't true. Like, yeah. And I realized it was really um, empowering to say, I can reject that. I can say, no, this is not about me. Mm. God is love. God is peace, patience. Mm-hmm. And the, the fruits of the Spirit are just so powerful in helping us discern mm-hmm. what is from God. So is it, is it love? And love is the most important one, like Ahana read this morning, um, but joy, I know I love Ahana's reading, um, but there's joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, yeah. self-control, I mean, these are all gifts of the Spirit, and then I can say, oh, those are from God, and, yeah. I, and I can know those. Yeah. I can only imagine it must feel frustrating when you feel like you can't trust your own mind or you can't trust your own thoughts. Um, what's been helpful to you 
in that, like uh, meaning, like is it either psychosis or God, or like God with us in psychosis? Have you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think when our our bodies get ill or our minds don't work the way they're supposed to work, um, it can feel like um what's wrong? Like, yeah. this is supposed to be working for me. My body is supposed to be good and working for me, and my mind is working for me. But when it's not, it's really distressing. And um, for me, I've learned that it's not, I'm not all mentally ill. Right. <laughs> and I'm not, and it wasn't all 100% from God, mm -hmm. that there is a way of discerning. And I've, it's been a big prayer. Uh, actually, they did, we did Lenten big asks with a K, not an S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> big, big ask. <laughs> um, and this was my big ask, okay. and I feel like God is answering it very slowly for me. Mm. Um, but when, around that time when I was talking to my mom about, um, about uh, these voices and reading the Bible, and it was distressing, she said, you know, at my church, mm. I have this pastor, and she is very gifted. She, has, she prays for people. They receive healing. You might want to go see this pastor. Dial Emily's too humble. Emily's too humble. Yeah, yeah, not, but this yeah. is what she was saying to me. Okay, Emily's so humble. I'm just repeating what we my mom said. We were in a whole said. different setting 10 years ago, too. So anyway, so, anyway so I did. I, so I, I went to um, Emily Swan, and um, she said, well, do you mind if I, she asked permission, yeah. do you mind if I pray for you? And I said, yes. And she said, do you mind if I ask for the Holy Spirit to come on you? And I said, I'd never had a prayer like that before. I said, yes. And so she prayed for me. And I really did experience God's presence, love, peace. I did experience yeah. that. And I also um, noticed a, a very strong tingling sensation in my body. And it was very similar to that time before when I had been hospitalized. Mm. And so I felt like, oh, what is this? My symptoms, yeah. what is this? And so, and I, and I, I did go through um, a hospitalization again shortly yeah. after that. So it was hard to discern, like, what is this happening to me? Yeah, I think that was the first time we met, too. It, it was. And so I it, knew what was going on and was hoping you'd experience God in it. But yeah, it almost, it's like a hard thing because it was like, oh, I don't want to make this worse. No. And, and I can yeah. imagine it being a... When it's a loved one, when it's yeah. your parents or your pastors or yeah. people like that, it can be really hard for watching someone going yeah. through mental illness. So Matt, my husband, and I went to see yeah. Ken after that experience. Mm. Ken Wilson was the previous pastor here. and um, so we, my we, co-pastor. With the co-pastor <laughs> yeah, yeah. with Emily. And so we went to see him. And, and you know, Matt's like a science-y, doctor-y type. And I'm more like spirituality type. <laughs> and so we go to Ken They're and compatible. we lay it all out. And, you know, Ken was really validating. And, and he told me, maybe your brain was putting the pedal to the metal. So he's like, maybe you were experiencing God and its symptoms, but your, your brain was putting the pedal to the metal. And so after we left that conversation, yeah. Matt was like, oh man, he just totally validated everything I was yeah. thinking and have to say. And I yeah. was like, no, no, he totally validated everything I was thinking and had to say. Kale was really good. It was really good. Yeah. But yeah. pedal to the metal. Pedal yeah, I think that, like, that language makes sense too, right? Because sometimes your brain just does put the pedal to the metal, and sometimes our brains need a break from that. Yeah. Um, so what do you do uh, when your brain does that? Or maybe, like, I remember you told that story last time we shared about, like, the rabbis and the honey. That maybe yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So some, some stories in the Bible just really stand out for me or, or Midrash or things like that. They really stand out for me because of this experience that I would have just skimmed over if I had never had these experiences. Um, so there is one called the, the Legend of Pardes or mm -hmm. the Orchard um, in the Jewish tradition that I really spoke to me in some ways. Um, it was about four rabbis who entered paradise. Um, 
parties. Um, so there's Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. And it says that Ben Azai looked and died. Mm. It says Ben Zoma looked and went mad. Mm. Acher destroyed the plants. And Akiva entered in peace and departed in peace, mm. which is so hopeful and lovely and beautiful. And the rabbis teach that um, with Ben, um, that first Rabbi Akiva said to them, when, this is a little um, esoteric, but he says, when you come to the place of pure marble stones, do not say water, water. He said, for those who speak untruths shall not stand before my eyes. And that's from Psalm 101. And then they go on and they say, Ben Azai, he gazed and died. And regarding him, the verse states, precious in the eyes of God is the death of his pious ones. So Ben Azai was pious. And it says of Ben Zoma, who I maybe more relate to, that he gazed and was harmed. And it says, regarding him, the verse states, did you find honey Eat only as much as you need, yeah. lest you be overfilled and vomit it. Uh-huh. And that's from Proverbs 25, 16. And now that's very descriptive, but I was like, oh, it, it, it just resonated. My brain was kind of overfilling on this honey. Mm. And then it says, Acker cut down the plantings, and Rabbi Akiva entered in peace mm-hmm. and left in peace. So that, meaningful for me and helpful. Yeah, that was the one that really stuck out for me, actually, after all of these years of like, not eating too much honey. I thought that was kind of a good picture. And it makes a lot of sense because in the Bible, honey is often revelation, right? So there's a lot of stories where people eat honey and then their eyes are opened. So it's this idea of like revelation or spiritual experiences are good, but like too many can maybe be a little bit overwhelming, too much pedal to the metal. Um, Something that I found helpful as a pastor was um, Tanya Lerman's work, When God Talks Back. And in that, she she did a lot of studies of people um, who have like spiritual experiences of hearing God. And she's also studied a lot of people who have um, experiences with schizophrenia. That's kind of her specialty. And what she was trying to do was uh, differentiate like, is there overlap or are those like distinct experiences? And I found it helpful that she said, no, they're actually very distinct experiences. Um, And the ways that you can tell are, she gave these four things. Um, That one, if you feel like you're hearing from God, that the sensory overrides are rare and brief. So I don't know if you remember, but a couple weeks ago I shared um, a weird story that I had years ago where I felt like I was in the kitchen and I heard just kind of out of the blue, instead of being mad at me, try being mad with me at the injustices of the world. And I kind of interpreted that as like the spirit just sort of giving me a little nudge. But I'm aware that it, it sounds a little bit strange, but that sensory override was rare brief. That's not something that happens a lot in people's lives. The second thing she says is that um, people hearing from God, those things are not distressing to them when they happen, right? So it doesn't cause you fear. It's not something that causes you to think, oh, do I need to like go to a doctor? Is there something um, larger the matter with me? It's a non-distressing, peaceful experience. The third thing, people who hear from God or have spiritual experience um, report on hearing God. uh, They're acutely aware of what their audience might think of the experience when they're sharing it, right? So like when I share my experience, I couch it in a lot of like, I know it's a little bit weird. This doesn't happen very often. I, you may or may not believe it and that's fine. I, I don't know, it was meaningful for me. Um, but people who are experiencing um, mental health symptoms, they tend to not have that insight into what their audience is thinking. So there's no couching it and it's, um, yeah, they just aren't 
accurately interpreting sort of the reactions or responses of the people around them. And then the fourth thing is that uh, people experiencing God, there's a lack of sense of compulsion in the voice of God. So in other words, people who report hearing from God don't report feeling like uh, their will is being overridden or like they're being commanded to do something that they absolutely must do, um, but that God offers us invitations rather than absolutes. So maybe you're here, maybe you're a person who's experienced psychosis or mania or different things, and that'd be one way to kind of help differentiate. Is it something commanding you to do something? You feel like compulsively you have to do it? Or is it more like an invitation? Because that's usually experienced more from people who are having a, a, a spiritual experience rather than um, a mental health symptom. So I think it's worth noting too that audible voices that are interpreted as God happen a lot more than people talk about. I think it's 10 to 15% of people in the US and Britain report having heard some kind of experience, like some sort of voice that they've interpreted as God or the Holy Spirit. Um, and most of the people who report having those kinds of experiences have zero symptoms of anything that comes even close to a psychiatric disorder. Um, and other people were just very light on that scale. And I think they were trying to code cautious, um, pretty cautiously when they did that study. And just in general, far more people hear voices um, that wouldn't be diagnosed as symptoms of psychosis than we talk about. And so Tanya Lerman talks about with her undergrads at Stanford, um, she said that it's usually about 10 to 15 percent would report that they had, but then if she asks more specific questions, giving examples as prompts, so in other words, like she asks, I think, six questions, like, one time I was in my house and I don't think anybody else was there, but I heard somebody yell my name and I thought, oh, is my spouse or my you know, kid or my mom in the house? And you go down and you look and nobody's there. Has that ever happened to you? Like six different questions like that. And when she asks them like that, it's 50 to 70% of the Stanford undergrads um, report that they have had some kind of experience like that. So it's just, it's complicated, right? Our minds are these really interesting things that we don't fully understand. Um, so I want to talk a little bit too just about like how we manage symptoms and what's been helpful. So CK, what's, what's helpful to you as you manage your symptoms? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the love others, love yourself kind of bar is a really helpful one. When I'm in a manic episode, I'm not responsive to my loved ones and um, very well and, and not really uh, taking care of my own needs and stuff. Um, and actually, um, faith community. So being a part of a faith community is a huge part of um, my own well-being and recovery and hopefully helping others that are dealing with similar things. Mm -hmm. um, there are studies that show um, that when, you're, um, when you've dealt with mental health symptoms and you are a part of a weekly faith community, it doesn't matter what faith, um, but when you're a part of a community every week, you're... Um, you're, uh, you have an increased recovery rate, mm -hmm. it's faster recovery, and also you gain um, a higher resilience to stress mm. when you're a part of a faith community, and that, that really spoke to me, and I was like, oh, I find that to be true for me, and it's, a, it's amazing. Um, but it's important to note in those studies that they show that for um, like LGBTQ plus youth, um, when they're in non-affirming faith communities, when they mm -hmm. don't feel affirmed, the opposite is actually true. It's actually yeah. more harmful mm -hmm. to mental health. 
So it's just so important that you're in a community that you can be your whole self and be authentic and be able to share your experiences um, where you feel affirmed and loved and that can really help with the resilience and the recovery. And also just, you know, I have to do a reality check. Am I sleeping well, eating right, taking my meds, um, dealing with extra stressors? And then I reach out to my loved ones and I bounce things off people. Yeah, I guess I can talk about uh, managing my own symptoms, mostly anxiety or PTSD, which I don't really experience that much anymore, which is good. Um, like I said, my symptoms tend to be more situational, and so meds have been helpful at times. So you know, when I was going through, I just called my big ordeal, that whole thing. Um, after we planted this church, but it was all pretty new, and I had had all of that stress, and my body was starting to relax, my heart just started to skip a lot of beats. And it, it scared me to the point where I actually went to a cardiologist and put those little things on me for like six weeks. It was a real pain. It's like, your heart's really healthy. You're completely fine. This is just anxiety, which that took down my anxiety a little bit, which was helpful. Um, but it also just kind of shows you like what different situational things can do to our bodies. So for me, taking medicine was really helpful and it stopped the heart skipping beats. And so that was really helpful. Since then, you know, I've been able to um, just like wean off of that and have a little bit more of a holistic health plan. Every now and again, I, I wonder, especially if my wife's like, maybe some meds might be a little bit helpful to you right now. Um, I tend to resist it a little because for me, meds have side effects and weight gain is a big one for me. And so I am motivated to sort of manage apart from that. So I try and make sure that I sleep eight hours a night if I can get vitamin D, so I take extra if I need to. In the winter, I walk four miles a day, usually, unless I'm working in the yard all day, like I did yesterday. Mm -hmm. But like, I'm pretty motivated to walk, and I just walk and walk and walk. And even my therapist was like, just like, even in the winter, just roll up your sleeves a little, just to get a little bit more vitamin D <laughs> community. I mean, I think coming to church every week is helpful to me because it's been a healing and safe community. Um, and laughter. You know, hanging out with people who can make you laugh a lot, and Rachel makes me laugh a lot. And so those things have been helpful for me with my symptoms. Um, I think as we, as we wind down here a little bit, Caroline, I know you've been talking a little bit more recently about different ways of seeing resilience, and I wondered if you wanted to share a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I learned this model about resilience, um, and I think it can apply to many people's lives, not necessarily if you're dealing with mental health um, issues. But anyway, so the idea is that we're going along at a certain level in our life, and something significant, traumatic, difficult, challenging happens, mm -hmm. and our functioning just plummets. Mm -hmm. um, and so once that happens, um, some people are um, in survival mode. Mm -hmm. And it's like Emily said, it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. We're in survival mode, and that happens for some of us and yeah. all of us at times. Mm -hmm. And then um, in this study, they showed that some people get back and recover to where they were before the incident or significant event occurred. And that's where we're in recovery, and we're maintaining in recovery. Well, then they also showed that some people actually do better than they were before the traumatic or difficult incident occurred. Mm -hmm. And that's what they call resilience. So they're studying, well, why are some people yeah. having resilience, having, turning out even better than they were before it happened? And mm -hmm. I find that when I read the Bible, there's a lot of talk of resilience mm -hmm. in it. And I'm just going to pepper out a few verses. <laughs> so like, one is when we sow with tears, we're going to reap with, with, joy. with joy. Yeah. And another one is those who have been forgiven much love much yeah 
Um, there's one where it says, Paul says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yeah. And, you know, those who mourn will be comforted. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom of heaven. I mean, these are all resilience after adversity yeah. sayings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the gifts that you give as a pastor, too. I think you sometimes read or approach different scriptures or stories differently than I would, or you catch things that I might not catch. Um, maybe, would you like to offer maybe a couple of examples of different stories that you've read that you're like, oh, I see, I see something there that's helpful to me. Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time, like all those I just said yeah. about resilience. Um, there's just a couple I, I, I could go on and on, but one is um, when Jesus' family thought that he was mentally ill, and they went out to restrain him or take him in, um, and it just made me feel less alone yeah. that he dealt with that. Yeah. And um, that was the one where he said, my mother and brothers are those who hear the will of God and do it. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's one in Second Corinthians where where Paul writes, um, if we are out of our minds, it's for God. But if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Yeah. And oh, oh that's beautiful. Like yeah. we can be in our right minds for each other. For each other, yeah. yeah. It's a way to love each other. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to wrap up by, by reiterating something that I said last week, and that is um, we want to create a safe community, but also we share our stories with the people who have earned the right to hear them, right, and vice versa. And so I don't want anybody to ever feel pressured like, oh, you have to share about your mental health symptoms or journey. You never have to share with anybody you don't want to share with. It's more like creating the kind of space where we can build the kind of relationships where we can create that safety, where if that's something that's helpful to you, that you can do that. Was there anything else that I was going to say here, CK? Oh, I was just say, yeah, I mean, just sharing um, our mental health stories, and I would say also with trauma stories. Doing that in safe places is healing. Um, doing it in unsafe places is not healing, right? So yeah. just kind of using your own judgment on that. Yeah. Yeah. Should we end there? Or yeah. Do you want me like, to tell my last story? Tell, tell, or, tell, tell your last tell my one. Story? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's... It's, yeah. it, so we've been talking about mania a lot and psychosis, but I think um, suicidal ideation and depression mm -hmm. is a part of bipolar and it's mm -hmm. also very serious and very mm -hmm. scary mm -hmm. for people. And um, I have a little story that I've told before. Some of the Zoomies have heard it. Yeah. Um, but um, I was, um, I had a friend come, uh, well, actually a little background, I did social work and um, a master's in gender studies before I came to work as an assistant to the pastor. So I had this sort of social worky background and I was like, you know, I'm at this great church. I love working here. Am I still doing the good work that I was doing before? And my friend came to visit to see what we were up to. And after the service, Ken came out to, um, to say, hey, well, what do you do for work? Or, you know, and she said, oh, well, I work in suicide prevention. Mm -hmm. And without even thinking, he was like, that's what we do here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, it was a light bulb. I was like, that is what we do here. I'm so thankful yeah. for this space and thankful for all of you. It was yeah. so meaningful. Yeah, I mean, that's something that Ken and I even talked about when we started the church. It's like, no church wants to turn in on itself and just be about, you know, itself, right? So we do these outreach things and we do the meal at Hope Clinic and all of these different things, helping resettle refugees. But also in this particular case, with the kind of church that we are and how we started, like the church itself is also sort of the outreach. And part of that is creating that healing community together, especially, um, you know, with our founding, it was for LGBTQ people who had been stigmatized, but also 
I think we were amazed when we started and people started to share their stories that it was actually, oh, people have had experience of stigma across the board in a lot of different ways. And so we're not perfect. We don't do it perfectly. I certainly make mistakes and misspeak. Um, but the goal is to try and create that kind of space so that we're here for each other. Because in American culture, like we're really losing a lot of that sort of interwoven fabric of, of spaces where people come together and long-term have relationships. And so it's really important for our well-being. And so that's what we want to create a healthy space for that. So thank, thank you, you, CK. I, I don't want to do a meditation today because I knew we were going to speak a little bit long. Um, but we'll go ahead and do our candles. And Caroline's going to do communion in just a, in a moment too here. So thank you, Caroline. I know that's a... A vulnerable sermon to give to, but <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really, you. I think it's one of the more important ones that we do.